Hi everyone, this is Jason. So, so excited that you can join the Now of Work podcast. Love the comments, love the feedback, and love the ratings that you guys are giving it. We truly live in a fascinating time, and it is our time together to create the Now of Work. This episode, I'm so excited to have Caitlin McGregor on. Caitlin is the CEO and co-founder of an organization called Plum.io. And Plum.io is really changing the world as far as how we think about talent management. If we think about talent management in the past, it's been control, it's been processes. If we think about talent going forward, we're going to talk about organizations' ability to be resilient when it comes to talent, knowing their talent, understanding their talent, stewarding their talent, and really thinking going forward what talent they need. Caitlin is on the leading edge of this. Um, Great, great discussion about assessments, great, great discussion about knowing your people, but most of all, really focusing on why talent and winning this concept of not having the best talent but having the right talent will truly drive forward what makes or breaks companies into the future. Look forward to it. Can't wait to have Caitlin on. Take a listen, connect with her, uh, and just take a look at Plum. Have a good one, everyone. Take care. Hey, Caitlin, how are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? Great. I'm so excited to have you on the Now of Work podcast. Uh, Our podcast is something that we started um, really about six months ago as organizations really started to think about what was happening in the workplace and what was happening with their talents and what was happening. You know, with all of these massive changes going on, as 2020 didn't turn out to be a year that any of us planned uh, on doing the things that we're doing. So, uh, so excited to have you and one of the futurists in our space. Um, can't wait to uh, talk to you about some of those things that you're seeing and uh, some of the things that your company's doing. So if you wouldn't mind starting, I'd love to just hear a little about yourself, your company, um, you know, its trajectory throughout, you know, as you've continued to move along. Uh, and most importantly, based on your accent, where you are. <laughs> so my name is Caitlin McGregor. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Plum. We help purpose-driven leaders future-proof their businesses to, by quantifying human potential. And so Plum maps the transferable nature of our innate talents like adaptability, innovation, communication, to opportunities where employees will thrive at every step in their journey. So from hiring, workforce planning, reorgs, to employee development, emerging leadership identification, uh, We are launching next week Plum's Talent Resilience Platform, which enables companies to design an unbiased and transparent strategy at scale. And we're based in Waterloo, Ontario in Canada, so just an hour and 30 minutes outside of Toronto. And we've been in market for just over six years. We started in the pre-employment assessment space helping high volume recruitment roles. So instead of relying on that eight and a half by 11 piece of paper to tell you what somebody can do, we have been using uh, best practices from industrial organizational psychology to quantify what people can do based on those innate talents. And now we're expanding to help enterprises with their employees through the entire life cycle. Wow. Lots to unpack there. So you said some things that I want to uh, 
that I want to get to. And as I was trying to even get to the point where I could take notes as to what you were saying, I was running a little slow this morning. So, um, but I want to start with something that you said that I, I think is fascinating, quantifying human potential. Uh, and you, know, you can break that down. You know what I mean? Unpack quantifying. So how do you quantify human? You know, are we just talking about work potential or life potential? You know, am I a whole human? And then what's potential? And I think that, would you mind going into that? Because I think that just that phrase, quantifying human potential, is so interesting uh, to me. For us, it's the core of what we do. When we think about making decisions, decisions around people, should we hire them? Should we promote them? Should we add them to this team? You know, a lot of the times we're looking at, you know, education and past work experience, potentially performance uh, reviews. And if you look at those measurements, you know, a, you know, they are full of the systemic barriers and biases that existed in, in the history of somebody's interaction. You know, what schools they had access to, what internships they had access to, what jobs and how fast they, they progressed through them. All of the inequalities that exist in our system influence that historic data. And it's presented in a way that is completely subjective how somebody is going to interpret that data as to whether or not somebody can do the job, has the eligibility, and they're guessing, they're trying to de-risk their decision as to, is that good enough for me to take a chance on somebody? Whereas when we think about quantifying, we're actually talking about a real scientific measurement of understanding what somebody has and how much they have it compared to something else. And so the first part is we are actively assessing. We aren't scraping, you know, resumes and keywords that people can just, you know, fill full of keywords they're hoping that'll be picked up. Um, we're not scraping, you know, Twitter and Facebook accounts to say, you know, how, how is your, your outward presence? We're actually asking people to complete a 25 minute assessment. And in that, when we get into, you know, what are we measuring? We're looking at problem solving ability. So no language or math, there's no bias against certain socioeconomic groups like IQ tests and things would introduce. It's really about abstract problem solving. How well do you solve complex problems? It's a visual puzzle. And the second part is personality. Now, I think a lot of us are familiar with the Myers-Briggs and Baby Disc. And the thing is those assessments are over 70 years old and they're no longer 70. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It seems like I was Plus. reading about those. Yeah. Reading about those in uh, junior high and high school and then took them and then said, Hey, based on my letters, what does this mean that yeah. I'm going to, uh, my ESTJ, does that mean I can't measure, measure an INF or excuse me, marry an INFP um, stuff like that. So for me, when I think about quantifying, I'm like, I wonder if that's what quantifying is or if that's Frankenstein quantifying. I think that the best way to say it is there, there's been, it's better than nothing because it's starting to give insights, but we have come so far from then, you know, why, why use something, you know, that was invented just after the second world war, you know, why are we using that in 2020? We can do better. The, the science has come a long way. So now it's about really looking at how do you get an accurate read? on how people prioritize 
their behaviors. And, and the best way to think about it is, you know, at the end of the day, when you're done work and you think about, was today a good day? Do I feel drained or do I feel pumped? You know, do I feel like I've been energized by today or am I, you know, just running on empty? And that really comes down to where we get a sense of self-worth. If I love to come up with out of the box ideas and I got put on a project where I was solving something that the company has never solved before and I have a breakthrough, I am, that is going to be the best adrenaline rush I've ever experienced because I had an opportunity to shine in something that makes me exceptional. But if I have to try to figure out a really complex process, and how to put that into a process that everyone can understand and scale with. And it's about minute project planning and, and minute details about how to create a machine where people are just going to be cogs in the machine. I'm going to be drained. It's not that I can't do it. It's just, it's going to take me three times longer than somebody that excels in it. And I'm going to be wiped. And so if we can start to understand, you know, what drives us and what drains us, then we're starting to understand that human element of what makes me exceptional. And we think about some of the greatest people uh, historically, you know, that are at the top of their careers. And the majority of them, you, you ask them, you know, did you go to school for this? Think about your own experience. You know, mm -hmm. did you go to school for what you're doing now? You know, you're super successful. Most of the time people say, no, I didn't go to school for this. Well, did you, you know, 20 years ago think that that's where you would end up? Like, did you start your career here? And most people say no. Some of the most successful people found the nonlinear jumps to progress in, and, and eventually the ones that are successful are the ones that figured out what makes them exceptional. And they found a way to really, you know, do that every day. And so when we're quantifying human potential, we're measuring what is that thing that's going to make somebody you know, deliver exceptional results from their, their peers. And that's about the potential. They may never have done it before, but if you give them the opportunity, who out of a hundred people or a thousand people or in your company of 20,000 people, if you have a new project that's spinning up out of the 20,000 yeah. employees, who are the ones that are going to be game changing for your business? If you put them on that project. Yeah. My gosh. Once again, so much more to unpack there. Thank you for driving us down that, uh, <laughs> down that path. Before we do, before we unpack that, and you mentioned something called Talent Resilience Platform that I don't want to. That's another thing coming up this, that I want to unpack just, you know, as part of this discussion. But so, and, and you know, I don't, don't take this the wrong way, but who are you? Like, who are you to start telling us how to measure people and like, this has been something that, you know, when I was teaching at the University of Minnesota, people were like, how do you put a dollar amount on people? And how do you put a value on people? And how do you measure, like you said, quantify human beings and then human potential? Like, what, what's your background um, that gets you or that makes you qualified to, to, to have these conversations? Because I think a lot of people, you, you know, sorry, I'm just going to be a little bit blunt. You know, you can put these wackadoodles out there that create an assessment and say, hey, I can tell you if you're green and blue and I can tell you if you're blue and green. And hey, it's almost like dating. But, you know, why, why your approach and why do you believe it works? That is a fantastic question. So the first part is the people that typically have designed accurate assessments tend to be academics that work at Ivy League institutions 
or consultants that frankly make their money on interpreting really complex assessments. And so yeah. a lot of the times, you know, access to this highly predictive information has been very limited based on price tag and based on where it's used. Often assessments are used in the top 10% of the organization on directors and above, and then more recently in high volume roles, the bottom 20% of the workforce like call centers. And, you know, my experience was that about a decade ago, I was running an educational software business uh, out of the US and I went to make my first hire. And I had an executive coach that had designed a psychometric assessment. So the type of assessment that we, the, the, the same genre of assessment that we use. And he had designed it while he was at Harvard as an academic to generate extra income. So one of those academic Ivy League use cases. But because he had been my executive coach for years, I was able to access this assessment and pay enormous consulting fees to have the results interpreted for me. But I was able to do something that was slightly new at the time, which was not limit the assessment to the three people at the end of the funnel where, you know, I've had 80 resumes and I've, you know, narrowed it down and I've interviewed 10 people and then I've got three people and then have them take the assessment. That's traditionally what, what had been happening 10 years ago. And so mm -hmm. I have the unique ability to use the assessment at the beginning of the funnel on all 80 applicants. And what happened is that I consistently for two and a half years kept finding these amazing diamonds in the rough that I never would have found if I had relied on the resume first. So, you know, I would have somebody with a master's education, five years relevant work experience, you know, it on, by all accounts was the golden boy for the role, but the assessment scores would show you'd have a mediocre work ethic. But I'd say, hey, you know, this is an experiment. We'll try it out. And within three months, he'd be doing 10% of his work. And I'd have other people that, you know, completely unrelated background in education, you know, seven years of waitressing, never used Excel, and would be hired and be, you know, be doing their workload plus the other person's workload and be, you know, rising through the ranks really quickly. And so yep. I got to see this untapped potential by running my own business over two and a half years that I said, enough is enough. You know, we need to democratize access to this highly predictive information. This is a kind of a unique combination that I even have access to this. What about all the other business owners? You know, this science is a science. There are 10,000 right. industrial organizational psychologists in the world that have already figured this out over decades. The problem is, is it, it hasn't been accessible. And so I, I started Plum to be able to really marry the accuracy and the science with software as a service and the usability and focusing on, you know, employee and candidate experience. How do we make this a positive, automated, scalable, intuitive system that doesn't require a consultant and, and truly democratizes access to this information? Yeah, no, I love that. And I, it's almost... And so I want to talk about the talent resilience component, but it almost, you know, that whole democratization that you just mentioned, you know, it almost sounds like we're, I'm just going to say it, killing old school talent management, um, you know, which was more around command and control and getting people to go through a process that they never really understood what it meant to truly thinking about how do I do workforce planning differently? How do I make sure that I'm thinking about, um, you know, what the future of the business needs, not just the business from a business selfishness standpoint, but from a people selfishness standpoint and taking care of my people as well, which is so 
important right now from a humanity standpoint. So when you say resilience, you know, well, first of all, I'd love your thoughts on talent management because, you know, we've been doing talent management forever. Um, you know, ever since job appraisals started before performance management, um, you know, to where we are today, A, and then B, when you start talking about this talent resilience platform, you know, I, you know, I'm a huge non buzzword person. So I hate to like say, Oh, here comes a new buzzword. Like what's the difference between that and what people have been doing? Cause I think it's really important to, to delineate that to in this part of conversation. Yeah. Is that fair? Absolutely. And, and I think it's a great question. You know, at the core of it is what is the purpose of a business? What is the purpose of a CEO? If you look at, you know, 30 years ago, the goal of a CEO was to maximize profits for the shareholders. That is the number one responsibility. And how do you do that? Well, you cut costs and you increase profits. And so we talk all the time about how employees are a cost center. HR is a cost yep. center. We will invest tons and tons of money into sales and marketing because that's a revenue generator, but HR is a cost center. We have said, oh, your people are your greatest asset, but none of the practices actually reflect that because when it goes back to you know, minimizing costs, people are seen in that light. What's changed is people, employees, are actually starting to be at the center of the equation. A, there has been a shift in leadership styles in, over the last decade. And, and I have to give credit where I really think it started in business to consumer type of businesses like Whole Foods and Starbucks, where they started saying, you know, this isn't about profits. This is as the, as the starting place. This is about honoring all stakeholders. This is about being purpose-driven as an organization to honor our employees, to honor our customers, to honor the environment, and to honor all of our stakeholders, which includes that group plus our investors. And that if we do that, then we will end up being more profitable. And purpose-driven organizations are three times more profitable. So there's a huge competitive advantage that financially demonstrates returns. So when you start to put your employees at the center of things it, and really truly value them as being your greatest asset, you start to realize that it starts with, do you even know who you have? Do you even understand the potential of what is underneath your own roof? Do you even understand what would be possible if you gave them the right resources and opportunities? And we haven't in the past started our talent practices with really understanding how to maximize somebody so that they are thriving every day they come to work, that they are in a position where they are thriving as human beings. And in return, the business then thrives. And that's where the resilience comes in, where if we keep treating people as a cog in a machine that are just, you know, easily replaced, then we're not going to have the stamina to get through crisis, crises and, and different changes. We're not gonna have the ability to adapt quickly. And that's gonna lead us to not even, you know, we're gonna be the next Kodak that's gone out of business. Like we need something that sustains us and allows us to have that competitive advantage so that we are here three years, five years, 10 years from now. And it starts with 
truly, truly understanding the humans you have and how to maximize them so that you're maximizing the outcomes for your business long-term, short-term and long-term. So resilience, you know, I think that, you know, there's some, there was a great new study and I have to, I'll have to find it, but it just came out. I just saw yesterday or something the day before on resilience and how, um, how not resilient people are, um, how people aren't bouncing back, how people aren't springing back. And, you know, I, I don't want to talk about personal resilience because we can go on that forever. I think it's important. Um, another time, uh, but, you know, organizational resilience. And I get worried that people are going to think that organizational resilience is just a return from COVID. Um, you know, return from COVID, return from COVID. Like, I'm starting to worry that people don't realize that there's more to life than just COVID. I'm not, and by the way, I'm not downplaying it, but I'm saying that, you know, business has changed, workers have changed, work has changed. When we get to the other side of the uh, pandemic portion of this, you know, resilience is going to be key. And is, is resilience a one-time thing or is resilience something that I measure? Like I go to the gym five times a week and I need to make sure that I'm being resilient five times a week. Like when we use that word, I don't want to get into the definition of it right here, but like what, how do I build the muscle of resilience? And, and then how can tools like what you're talking about help me with that? Yeah. So the way we think about it to start with is one of the key elements about resilience is adapting to change. But for what purpose? I mean, we could just say adaptability. And I think, you know, last year it was a lot about the adaptable enterprise. And, and I still think that's true, but I think we've taken it to the next level saying it's not just change for change sake. It's change for a matter of survival and success that, you know, mm -hmm. there, if we don't change, then we will be left behind as an organization. And so the resilience is about how can you dynamically align your talent resources with your business objectives. So, you know, it starts with what are you trying to accomplish as a company? What is the, the goal you're trying to do? Well, when COVID hit, that all changed. You know, whatever your goals yeah. were before COVID got thrown out the window and you had to rethink about what the priorities were. And then three months, six months, you know, 12 months, you have to reassess what are the business objectives. And what's realized, if, if you think about, you know, the hospitality industry, for example, a lot of those workers that were frontline dealing with people with less volume, all of a sudden you can either, you know, forelong them or, or, you know, let go of them, or you can repurpose them because the call centers were going, you know, had this huge demand at the same time. So you have all these people that aren't needed in one area, but you have this other area that has great demand. So it's about how can you quickly move the resources you have into another area so that you can continue to be successful and you can continue to support your people so that when things come back online, you're not going out to the workforce trying to hire people from scratch and then going through all the time to onboard them. So it's about this dynamic, constant alignment of business strategy and talent in a dynamic way, and that creates resilience for the organization. And, and when you say it's, it's not just this one-time change with COVID, yeah. This is the reality. We were talking about it with the future of work. The difference is the future of work isn't a decade out or five years out. As you have said, 
you know, it's that, you know, the, it's now. It's now, right. Yeah, no, and I completely agree with that. So what is that, when, what, what do you recommend people do with their existing talent practices? So, you know, people don't, you know, people do an assessment, but it's, you know, it, it, no, no one takes it seriously. You know, people have talent profiles. And pe- I mean, we have the, you know, look, let's just break it down into the granularity of it. It's data, you know, it's data. And then I present that data to various people and managers don't know how to use it. Um, I have oftentimes people within HR that don't even know what it means. And I'd say that if you looked at all of that data tied to assessments and things, maybe 10 to 15% of it might get used. Um, you know, and I, you know, I know that we're not to the point where we're going to let machines, and excuse me from your technology background, but we're not going to let machines make decisions on who we hire. You know, we're not going to let machines, machines make decisions on people's careers. So how do we think about the difference between direction and decision um, when it comes to this type of data? Yeah. So let me jump to the first part of what you said. You know, it's not fair because I only talked about half of what we do. So one is the individual and talking about, you know, uh, I talked about problem solving and, and personality prioritization in a way you can't fake. And then I didn't talk about, but it's also social intelligence. How well do you solve people problems, which is critical um, for any customer facing or leadership type roles. So we get a holistic view of the person. But that's only half the equation. Mm-hmm. Because you can have somebody that's incredible at executing, um, but if they need to be in team meetings where it's really about alignment and cohesion with the other team members and communicating with them, sitting off in a corner, getting through your own to-do list isn't going to be what's needed for success in that role. So it really comes down to role fit. This is back to best practices from IO psychology is the way you predict performance is what the heck do you actually need in the role? And we, we know about KPIs, you know, we allow managers to set what are the key performance indicators for somebody to be successful moving forward. And, you know, we don't borrow KPIs from competitors. We don't use KPIs from five years ago. We need them for that specific role moving forward. Well, we do the same thing, but around KBIs, key behavioral indicators. We have automated the job analysis. You would hire Corn Ferry to come in and interview a bunch of your managers and the job experts around a job, and they would create a competency model. Well, we've automated that job analysis process. You don't need to bring in the team of IO psychologists to do it. In eight minutes, it allows the manager and three to, to seven other stakeholders that would be job experts to narrow down what are the key behaviors you need somebody to have in order to be successful. This is faster than a job description. It's quantified in terms of what are those behaviors you need somebody to perform in to be exceptional. And it's transparent. So you instantaneously can see, are you even aligned? If everyone says, yes, we need somebody who's amazing at persuasion and then communication and teamwork, and you have somebody be a 99 match to that, then you know with a high degree of confidence that's at least worth the conversation with the person. But um, if you're all over the place and one person thinks you need somebody innovative and another person thinks you need somebody that's good at execution, we're actually flagging that you have 
you know, a misalignment before even bringing that person into the role. So this is where the quantification is important. And then you quantify how well somebody would succeed. Don't put the person who's a 30 match in that job, go put them in the job where they're a 98. It's going to be a win-win with the 98 and it's going to be a mess with the 30. So it's not making the decision. What it's doing is saying you have, you know, so many people to evaluate and it's not the only thing that's been scalable is the keyword search or that eight and a half by 11 piece of paper or, you know, endorsements on LinkedIn. And, and those statistically, scientifically aren't predictors of performance. They'll tell you if somebody meets the bare minimum, bare minimum eligibility, but they won't tell you how they'll perform. So we're allowing you to see in a, a very, um, clear way with an enormous amounts of really easy to understand data, why somebody would be successful or not. And you can then decide out of your options, you know, do you have the time to bring them up to speed? You know, what are the salary requirements that would be required for that level of experience versus somebody more junior? It allows you to have the right conversation with the right people with the right information about what success looks like. And that is something that's been missing in the existing process, be it for hiring or be it for even something like succession planning, where honestly, 50% of the people that are recommended into a lot of the programs, be it succession planning or emerging leaders, aren't successful in, you know, based on those, those, promote, those um, recommendations from their managers. So we need to do better. This is the time where we've already proven that the other systems aren't giving us the, the right return on investment. Wow. That's a great statement that the whole not, not giving us a return on investment. I, uh, I love that. I don't want to drill deeper into it, but I, it's a, uh, it's a great, like, how do I say it? It's a great mic drop. How's that? It's a great mic drop because I think that it, it's really where this is all headed. So um, really quickly, how can organizations find out more about your organization? A. B, how can they learn more about this talent resilience uh, platform as you get closer and closer to, um, you know, to the launch? Um, so let's start with that. And I have one more question. So plum.io, so plum.io is our website and you can go there. You can also even take your own plum assessment at no cost and see your top three talents. So, you know, what, what is it that makes you exceptional? And it gives you insights so that you can be the CEO of your own career journey and in your own career development by understanding how to advocate better for where you will thrive in the workplace. And you can learn more. Uh, our talent resilience platform it is live in a week. And for us, it's, it's just an evolution of what we've been doing for the past six plus years with helping with candidates. Uh, our customers were organically using this internally for the last several years. And we've just purpose built to help support reorgs and workforce planning and succession planning and identifying emerging leaders, not in that top 10% of the workforce, but through 100% of the workforce you know, who are the people that you want to make sure you hold on to and don't lose in two to three years to your competition. And so it's all there. And we'd love to talk to people who are interested. We're excited to work with people that, you know, we believe there are a whole bunch of leaders out there that finally have the budgets and the authority and the buy-in to truly make the change, to move this from 
you know, really making it about the command and control and, and managing of people to how do we support them and how do we set them up for success and allow them to thrive. And we believe that there is a whole generation of the first leaders in organizations to be able to create this change. And they're probably looking to their right and left and saying, how am I going to do this at scale? How am I going to do this in an objective way that honors our people and helps me accomplish my DE&I initiatives? You know, how, how am I going to do this? And we built Plum based on the feedback from our customers, specifically to be there as partners with those leaders at the forefront of this desperately needed change. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And but wow, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take that assessment. Do you think there's a way we can get the uh, the presidential candidates in the U.S. to take that assessment? Um, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Back to our earlier conversation. Um, and then the last thing that I like to just make sure that people understand is you know, I get the opportunity as part of the podcast platform here to talk to amazing leaders. And, you know, one of the things that like you and I were talking about a little bit earlier uh, this morning is, you know, before we started here that, um, you know, there's a, people have reached surge capacity in lots of areas and people are feeling depleted in lots of areas. Um, and I know that you're up in Canada. So, you know, not that that's not that you don't not dealing with the same global issues that, uh, that everyone else is dealing with, but, you know, I would say, what's that one more thing or what's the thing that makes you get up in the morning and say, wow, I'm going to change the world today and do the types of things that you're doing you know, in your organization? I think it's an honor and a privilege to be a leader. And what I've realized is that being a leader means that you have a responsibility to lead. It is scary. It's unknown territory, but it is our responsibility. If we are going to fill a leadership role, then it's up to us to do the absolute most we possibly can with that role to create the type of change that's needed for us to create a, a better society to live in. We have a legacy to leave behind as leaders. Uh, somebody else could be in our spot and, and they could be creating that change, but, but we're here in it. And so I get up in the morning feeling this enormous responsibility to take the, the knowledge that I have from you know, being able to work with great companies uh, like Bloomberg and Whirlpool and SAP and Scotiabank, you know, they're really sharing with us the, you know, what's happening in their organization and what change needs to happen. And with that insight, we can do better for, you know, hundreds of companies. And so I feel, I know this works and I, I really want to enable more companies to create change with it. And I, I do fundamentally feel it's a responsibility as leaders. To, to step up to that responsibility when you know there's a better way. Yep. Great. I love your passion. I know this works. I know this works. Um, I love the way you just said that. It's going to be the thing I want to take away. That's what we're going to call this episode, I think. I know this works. So uh, thank you for doing everything you're doing in the space. It's great to have you on and uh, look forward to continuing the success that you're seeing today. You know, I'm continuing to watch you guys going forward into the market. Thank you, Jason, for having me. Really appreciate it. Congratulations, Caitlin. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.